0: Welcome to the My Why podcast, where educational storytellers Jesse Mann and Kristen Travers discuss identity-defining moments with special guests. Inspiration ensues.
1: We are back with another connection that we want to share with you. And we've had many people reach out recently, and we want to take a minute before we get going here to share a few thoughts and celebrate the people who've been on the cast so far. Jessica recently shared about the shame she felt for being born without part of her arm and how she has overcome that and now is thriving. Sienna took the bull by the horns and when her boyfriend needed a kidney, despite him not wanting her to go through that, she found out that she was a match, discussed it with her then boyfriend, and she did end up being his donor. They're happily married and just welcomed the first addition to their family. We've met a mom of many who had open heart surgery and is now following a new path and passion. The honour was ours to sit down with Dr. Masary and Melissa, healthcare professionals on the front lines right now. And Dr. Masary was on shift the night of the Humboldt Bronco bus crash. Him sharing the Logan Effect was an hour we will never forget and a message that will last lifetimes. We've covered topics like sexual assault, addiction, mental illness, and so much more. And for sure a highlight for us was our first launch with one of Canada's most powerful women, and someone that we are now very humbled and honored to call a friend and a mentor, Jess Tatu. What do all these people have in common? They are resilient and they are inspirational and they are empowering and they are crushing comfort zones by sharing their story for us and for you. They're fighting for growth and improvement and they have grit and grace. They have stumbled, fallen, and have had their worldviews shift through identity defining moments. And we've had the honor of meeting them and telling their story. And each of them has taught us great personal lessons and given us the honor of telling their stories. These stories are changing lives. And that is something that we just simply want to be a part of. We aren't your regular podcasters, with Kristen surviving a stroke in 2015 and losing her ability to communicate for for months. And myself being someone who's always struggled to find the right words, we're two women who have a passion to connect with others. And we want to take a second to thank Jess, Justin, Candice, Sienna, Marin, Dr. Masri, Melissa, Ashley, Meredith, Jessica, and today, Katie. Many of these people were strangers before this, and now we thank them for impacting our lives and those of thousands of others. These casts have been downloaded and heard now over 20,000 times, and we're just shy of weekly streaming in 20 countries a week. This is truly incredible to us, and we thank you for listening and supporting the stories that we think are truly worth sharing and cementing for years to come. So why do we do this? One, to meet resilient and empowering people. These are the people, or these are the type of people, we want to surround ourselves with. And these are the people we want to put in our circle and have as our influences. Two, we want to give people a platform to share these stories. This is how we are building legacy for ourselves and for others and helping others to do the same. We used to be concerned with our resume and checking boxes and now we are all about connections. Three, we're working through our own personal journeys and struggles and having this circle and meeting these incredible people and listening to their stories is helping us to heal and grow in different ways. Number four, lastly and simply, storytelling is our passion. So we love when you reach out and feedback is always welcome. If you have a suggestion about someone you recommend we reach out to, are interested in supporting a story or ever have questions, please reach out. Times are crazy right now and we really are all about connections during COVID and other times. Today, as we prepare for another truly awesome story, We share a trigger warning with you, as this podcast will cover serious material and topics such as depression, self-harm, and suicide. Please protect yourself and reach
0: out if you are in need. We want to welcome our next guest here on My Why. Katie is a certified yoga and meditation educator, and is a fierce advocate and supporter of helping others through their mental health and trauma journey. She's also a young mother, a new wife, and a founder of Be Free Yoga Foundation, be Free Yoga Foundation is a nonprofit organization that brings the tools of yoga and meditation to those that are moving through or living with mental illness. They provide accessible programming to those that are seeking support for their mental health. Thank you, Katie, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. Hi, yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Excited to be here.
1: We're honored to have you. So before we get into the incredible foundation and the work you're doing, we want to understand how you got there. And so can you start by telling us a little bit about little Katie, Katie's childhood, and just a little bit about what your growing up was like? Uh,
2: Yeah, so I grew up um, on a farm about 45 minutes west of Edmonton, uh, so west of Stony Plain, um, with my parents and I have a younger brother really grateful for the for the life I had and that bringing I had um, I grew up rodeoing and yeah I, <laughs> I know you bra race right yeah yeah so I grew up bra racing um, really competitively and I uh, was really yeah really grateful to have that to have that life and so I really just living on the farm rodeoing um, my parents were really yeah really great people just really did everything they could to support me and my brother and everything that we wanted to do and
1: yeah my childhood was pretty pretty fun we are farm kids and the listener probably was like why did katie say that she when she said (laughs) rodeo my eyes were like what fellow barrel racer what the heck how did i not know this we are so uh, grateful for our up- upbringing, you know, on the farm. And there's so many lessons. What do you think was one of the greatest lessons that you learned on the farm? You learned rodeo and you learned competing. That you think has helped form you into um, a resilient person.
2: We well, probably learned this in lots of places, but growing up on the on the farm and and rodeoing and doing that competitively, you yeah, you learn a lot of resilience. You have to. Things get hard. Things are challenging. Things don't always go your way or how you want them to go, how you think they should go. And you still have to show up you still have to be there. Rodeoing and working with horses, you have to be so present. And so even though like you might not be feeling the best or stuff is really hard, you still have to try to be embodied and be really present and in the moment. And I think that really allows you to start to move through things that you might be dealing with or moving through um, some issues or trauma or just your emotions that we can go through in an everyday basis.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. And thank you so much for sharing that. So you've been very upfront and very willing to share some of the struggles that you have had in terms of of self-harm and and suicidal thoughts. And um, when did some of those enter your life? You mentioned, you know, childhood for the most part was, pretty standard and rodeo and on the farm and that kind of thing. When did you notice that some of those struggles were starting to happen in your mind and in your heart?
2: To be honest, I probably didn't realize how long I've struggled with my mental health until I was in my twenties. And then looking back at old patterns and things that thought patterns and coping mechanisms that I had um, as a teenager. And then really realizing like I was going through depression oh, like self-harm isn't a normal way to cope um, with things or a healthy way to cope with my feelings. When I was well, probably around thir- 13, the end of junior high um, is when things started, my mental health started to become really challenged. I moved through, I call things like capital T and like lowercase t trauma. Um, so I moved through some lowercase t trauma, and just like really didn't know how to deal with it. And I don't think the people in my life really knew how to su- support me in it. And I wasn't really willing to talk about it. From there, I my mental health really started to spiral. And then adding in, like, being a teenager is really challenging in gen- general, as we know, and, and so hard. And um, so just adding that all together, just kind of, I was having a really hard time coping. And so started started self-harming in yeah, probably about grade nine. Um and I'd go through phases, so I would that would be something I would do almost daily for like a long period of time. And then I would start to kind of pull myself out of it and be okay for a little while and then something would happen. It would it would trigger trigger me and I I would be back into those um patterns and that happened for for quite a while and something honestly I still um, can be triggered with as well but that's about when it when it started for me.
1: Was it okay for me to ask a little bit about that that trauma and what started you on that path?
2: Yeah I haven't talked about it for a long time so I had my best friend at the time tell like a really big lie um, that she was dying and she wasn't and it was uh, when you're 13 and you think your best friend is dying your friends are your whole world when you're that young you don't have the comprehension that there's other other things and even now like obviously friends are really important but at that time it's just like how am I supposed to do anything she's the only person that understands me only person I can talk to and now I'm not going to have that and I'm not going to how do I move forward if if she's not there that was what I was moving through and then yeah it's funny because I even still like judge myself I think for feeling like, oh, it's not that doesn't feel like it should have been something bigger that really triggered these thoughts for me.
1: So, when did you learn that she was not being truthful with you? Uh, probably
2: after a few months, I uh, just started to notice notice things and caught her in a few lies, and yeah, kind of and kind of moved moved from there. I did a lot of work around it once I got older and kind of understood how much of a toll that actually took on me um, at the time. But yeah, it was a really challenging and then I, I, I think it's in personally just think it's interesting that's what yeah kind of just started these thoughts for myself and by no and means do I blame this person or anything like that it's just it was just a really challenging situation
0: did you discuss with adults around you about your feelings at that time or did you just kind of bottle it down
2: yeah I mostly just bottled it I think I felt I think I felt embarrassed I think I felt uh, really ashamed, and I don't think I could name that those feelings at that age. I don't think a lot of us have the comprehension at that age to fully understand how we're feeling. And I also felt like, also in your teenager, you know, I was like kind of a little bit of an angsty teenager. So like nobody understands me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Adults don't get it.
1: Put hormones on top of that.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah
0: puberty.
1: I mean, we we talk about hormones still and how they impact us positively and negatively as as adults, let alone at 13. Like you said, when the your brain is not there and doesn't understand the when you started self harming, did you really hide that uh from your family did they notice and how long was it until they they noticed and and did they ever find out and intervene uh so i never
2: to- really told anybody like i didn't tell any of my any of my friends never told my family and like part of me obviously like knew that it, i don't know if it wasn't right is like the right terminology but i knew there was like judgment around how i was handling stuff and so just for fear of being thought that I was, like, weak or, or less than. I just really didn't want to tell anybody uh, what I was doing. And, I, there's different ways of self-harming. It wasn't like I was cutting with knives. It was really a different type of self-harming where I was scratching, just felt this uh, really inability to, like, or this uh, wanting to, like, get out of my body. And I was almost, like, clawing, like, wanting to claw my skin off of me. I think that can go a little bit more unnoticed sometimes. My parents actually never found out about it until I was um, an adult and started
0: speaking. So, I mean, I, my mental health was not very great when I was younger. And we, I had a lot of trauma, I guess, when I was younger. And uh, my best friend committed suicide. And I remember feeling the same thoughts as you did. Like, I didn't want to talk about mental health. I didn't want to talk about what I was feeling. I didn't have words to describe it really. And I felt like judgment about not being able to handle it. And I didn't, I didn't talk about anything for quite some time. And I honestly have never really talked to my family about the way that I was feeling back then. So how was that conversation when you actually talked to your family about like, this is, you know, I was self harming at the age of started at the age of 13. And like, how, how did they receive that? And what, what was that like? Even as an adult, even now still, I still have stigma
2: around my my own journey. I find that it's hardest to talk to with people that you love or in a way because you, I almost felt like I was disappointing my parents, even though that's like not true. I know that's not true. So it was how they, I'm not proud of how they found out about it. I started sharing my story kind of publicly. And that was like the only way I knew how to like get the words out was for them to read something that was public. And then, but it was a way for me to start the conversation. And right away, as soon as it was public, I was like, hey, this is what I'm talking about. And this is, um, you're going to read about this. And just know, like, it wasn't, anyways, fault that nobody noticed.
0: Well, and I think too, it's very important to say, like there is so many kids right now that are still self-harming and still um, having those thoughts. And they, I mean, of course their parents love them. Of course they're supporting them, of course. But you still have that stigma around around mental health and, and even though parents are completely supportive, they still don't want to come forward. So like, I still haven't had that conversation, because it would be totally uncomfortable. And I mean, I'm sure I could, but it's very, it's very uncomfortable, even at this age. Mm -hmm. So it's nice that you're saying that because it's it is a challenging thing to, to talk about, for sure.
1: I love Katie that you're sharing that it's not something that that just goes away too because I think that a lot of people think that you know that that's something that teenagers do and often teenager teenage girls do and then you get to adulthood and you know you realize I shouldn't be doing that and then it's almost like it's just fixable and it's fixed. And so I think that's really important that you're sharing, that this is something kind of ongoing for you. And obviously another piece of that is uh, the suicidal thoughts and, and um, things that you share that you um, have had and maybe still have. Can you talk a little bit about that as well?
2: When I was younger, I had a little bit of suicidal thoughts, but it wasn't anything, it wasn't like overpowering. It was like maybe like a fleeting. It wasn't a very serious thought at that point when I got uh, older and into my early mid-20s, uh, I went through another really severe depression for like eight months. It was like really serious. I would say almost half that time I was like severely suicidal where it was literally every thought in my brain every minute of the day. You know, like I, I had a plan and it was just, it was, uh, yeah, it was very, very real for me.
1: Did something trigger trigger that, or did that kind of come on gradually and then just take hold for you?
2: Honestly, I do. I I think what triggered my that depression I had just that year opened up. Uh, I used to have a yoga studio, and so that was my first year of business. I, no like no business background no idea what I was doing I just loved yoga and really wanted to uh show up in the community and went and went for it and uh still super proud of myself uh for putting myself out there like that and, and doing that but this stress was very overwhelming and I think it just kept piling up and piling up and piling up until like I it, it triggered me into a severe depression and so I like remember I remember just driving I'd be driving to I used to, I lived in the country and my studio was in town and just driving the whole way thinking like, I don't want to, I can't do this. I don't want to be here today. Today's the day. Somehow, I don't know, I would get to the studio and I would teach and those moments of teaching were moments of like reprieve for me where it's like, okay, I get to be here and I get to be here for somebody else. And it's not about me for this time. So it's just a space where I can just show up for somebody. And then as soon as class is over again, it would just, Yeah, we just start. It was the stress on everything. So that while that was going on, because I was pulling away so much, I had also just gotten married that year. And I've been with my husband for a really long time. And I just started pulling away instead of telling him what was going on. And so then our marriage started to, we were (laughs) newly married. And I had this studio. And from the outside, everything looked pretty much picture perfect. Everything really felt like it was just like falling apart, especially especially myself, and once I started having these suicidal thoughts for, it probably took me over a month before I realized, like, this is really serious, I kind of, like, well, laugh at this, I don't know, it's not really funny, but, like, I still didn't think that I, I knew it was serious, but I also, at the same time, didn't think that I, like, had depression, or, like, you know, I was just, like, oh, this is just, everybody feels this way sometimes when things are hard, so, but I was, like, well, I should maybe just reach out, and so I started seeing, a life coach and I had a previous, like, like we know each other and stuff. So I just, I felt safe talking to her and uh, I just started telling her how (laughs) I was feeling. And then all of a sudden just realizing like, Oh, not everybody feels this way when things, when things get hard and that like, yeah, this is depression and um, I'm feeling very suicidal and this is really serious. And this isn't like, I'm in crisis. This isn't something that's just gonna go away.
1: And so what were some of the things that you worked on? And it sounds like you you know, kind of went to work on it. What helped pull you out of that?
2: So the big thing for me, I've been practicing yoga for years already by this time. And so uh, the most consistent thing I did was show up on my mat for myself. Doesn't mean it looked like a yoga practice. Like sometimes I would be, have the capacity to, to do a practice. Sometimes I would just sit on my mat and just cry. Sometimes I would would be there for two minutes. Cause that was all I had the capacity for. Sometimes I could be there for like a full, a full hour, but it felt like the only space I had that was safe enough just to be with myself and to be in it. And that just really helped me to move, to move through it.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you've been with your husband for a long time. Can you share how important it is for people to share, um, you know, struggles that they're having with, you know, the important people in their lives and maybe how difficult that, that is too sometimes.
2: Yeah. I found it very difficult to talk to my husband about it. Now we have like a very open dialogue um, about it and it's a lot, a lot easier for us to have these conversations. It wasn't like that. My husband's really funny. He's, uh, he's very, non-attached so he moves through things really quickly he doesn't tend to hang on to things uh, which is a really beautiful way to live but when you don't when you're not like that um, sometimes it's hard to understand and sometimes vice versa hard for him to understand how I'm feeling but I mean he was very patient and was willing I asked him I didn't know how to tell him so I had actually asked him to come with me uh, to see uh, my counselor at the time, and have her help facilitate that conversation because he knew I had seeing somebody, but he didn't realize how how serious it was, and so once we had that conversation and having that facilitator there was really important i for myself, and I think also it helped him because we each got to be heard and and seen, and were able to kind of move forward from there and I could ask for what I needed learn how to ask for what I needed for support.
0: So I love how you said you, you showed up for yourself on the mat and you knew yourself enough to find that sacred spot on the mat every time, every day, or whatever that looked like for you. Can you talk a little bit about knowing yourself and understanding yourself enough, even though you were in the midst of depression, making yourself do that? Because I know a lot, of, a lot of times when people are suffering depression, they just can't. Sometimes they just can't. And finding that strength in you to be like, okay, even if it's just five minutes, I'm just going to go to the mat and do something. You, when you're in it, like you just, you feel you can't do anything.
2: I remember when I was like, when I was going through that depression in my early 20s, mid 20s, like I would, I would literally like lay in bed until the absolute last second I had to, to get up to make it to the studio in time to teach. Um, I don't think I eight for eight months honestly I don't know how I made it to the mat I think I I've had a really solid practice for a few years so if I didn't have that background of already practicing um, I really don't think I would have made it there but just knowing how much clarity I've gained through my yoga practice that it would be supportive and like yeah no matter what it looked like. Just being there and trying, trying to find enough compassion for myself for not judging
0: that—that's what my practice was, which I mean, some days was there, and then a lot of days uh, wasn't. I really, really—I followed you on Instagram for quite some time, and why I find you so inspirational, amongst other things, is um, you have this, you know, personal struggle, and you found a way to make it mean something for other things for other. People And so can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about the Free Yoga Foundation and how that came about?
2: Yeah. So uh, once I moved through and felt like I was coming out of the severity of my depression, the suicidal st- thoughts, I uh, was starting to dissipate and uh, weren't so at the front of mind. And I just really realized how much I leaned on my practice in that time really realizing what it looked like and what our societal view of yoga is. And, and I just thought about how many people could really use this tool that don't have access to it. Um, and we say that yoga is like so accessible and everybody can do it. And the reality is it's actually really not an accessible practice and so just had this thought of like how do I make this accessible and i I have a friend Merle she's one of my good friends and so I talked to her and I said Merle I have this idea I want to offer some yoga practices the mental health and addictions unit in Spruce Grove like is that a possibility what does that look like um and she was so supportive and was just like yeah we can make this happen and and that's how it started and for me that first barrier to break break down is like the like the actual physical space that people are practicing in because like when you're when you're in this state of like a depression or other mental illness where everything feels so impossible the last thing you're going to do is like seek out a new space that you've never been to before and like put yourself in a situation that feels uncomfortable because you already feel so Uncomfortable in, in every aspect of your life. So, why would you try to go and make yourself feel more uncomfortable? You know? And so, it's like if we could bring yoga to a space where people already were going to and like were comfortable with the people that worked in that space or at least familiar, it was a familiar f- space that's like one small barrier that we removed. And so, um, we started offering. Class weekly classes um, in the boardroom at the mental health and addictions unit here in in Spruce Grove, and we're offering it for free. So I was I was volunteering my time to teach that class because that's another barrier is the financial barrier. Is yoga is not a cheap thing. It's so it's very expensive, Um, a very expensive tool and a very expensive um, support for self. So. Those are the two barriers that we just really want to start with and are trying to see how we can even make it more accessible from there.
1: And so from those classes, what else has the foundation done? What else have you done to continue to kind of grow, um, be free? Yeah, so we've run that class every week for six years this fall.
2: Um, Yeah, which is so... Um, exciting and, like, mind-blowing when I think about it. It's, like, really flown by. But that was a start, and from there, we were able to get our foot in the door with Alberta Health Services. Um, and now the foundation, we have, like, a board, and I have over a handful of teachers. Um, and we have gone into places. We go into, like, schools. We've worked with multiple school divisions. Um, we work uh, in the hospitals in Edmonton, Um, We worked with like Boyle Street community in Edmonton. Um, We also have free classes in the community as well. Just anywhere we feel like we might be a fit, um, we try to reach out. And then also being open to listening to how we can actually support because there's so many communities that can benefit um, from this practice but it doesn't mean that we know the best way to do that. And so just being really open and, and flexible in how people are needing support.
1: So we talk lots about choosing your life and choosing your, your path and not having it choose for you and, and knowing our passion. Sometimes, you know, life, it's so busy that oftentimes I don't know if we have enough time to really learn what we are passionate about because we're so regimented. And I know my twenties were spent checking boxes of the things I thought I was supposed to do. And it's now that I'm realizing, you know, different passions and interests that, that I have. And I know I'm not, I'm not alone in that. How important is it for you and your mental health to be living your passion? I mean, you've turned it into your job.
2: Mm-hmm. Very, very important <laughs> for me. Um If I'm, Not doing things that light me up, it impacts me very quickly. I'm not taking also space for myself, it impacts me very quickly. So just really having to be open to learning about myself and following things, following following that, what comes up, like, does this feel good? Actually, yeah, this feels great. Okay, let's explore this. In what ways can we explore this? This actually doesn't feel good. How can I transition out of that or move move away from that? I feel grateful. My personality traits—I'm pretty good at taking like chances, and I think that's because I I know I have somewhere to come back to if I need need it. I have uh, the support of my husband and of my parents always. If you know anything went sideways. I have that support and I'm, I know that and I'm so grateful because a lot of people don't have that. And so that's allowed me to really explore, explore, yeah, what I want to be doing and what are my passions and, and uh, what makes me feel good.
1: You've kind of created something and taken something that, you know, yoga is, it's all over the world, but you've taken it and you've really made it yourself and you've turned it into something that sort of wasn't necessarily created yet in a sense. So people who are sitting there and they're on the fence and they're doing something and they're questioning, like, should I take this risk? Is it silly to try something completely new with this? What would you say to that woman, to that man, to that girl that is sitting there thinking, I don't know if I can do this?
2: Just to really listen to your, how your body reacts and how your heart reacts when you are doing doing that, when you think about it or when you can picture yourself moving in that direction and it doesn't have to be like an all or nothing thing like how do we take the first step how do we take the small step and that small step is is actually huge because it takes so much courage to try something different and to try something new and to put yourself out there it's so vulnerable and we don't like being vulnerable it's so uncomfortable and it's hard and scary and so what is just really taking the time to be aware of who you are and how things feel to you and taking the small steps to move in that direction
0: I love that you said that sometimes I am notorious for that. I don't necessarily listen to my emotions and my body tells me. <laughs> um, so I, you know, my health tells me, but um, I love how you said, listen to your heart and listen to your emotions. And, and it will honestly tell you if you're on the right path and you are a, a shining example of that. I was going to talk to you a little bit about motherhood. And here at My Why, we are, are very, um, we're advocates of, of motherhood and we're advocates of, of postpartum health and mental health. And um, so how has your mental health been affected by being a mom and and what was that journey like for you? So my little guy, his name's Jude, he's just
2: over 16 months, so just about a year and a half. And during my pregnancy, I started to get a little bit of, I started to notice I was feeling depressed and I was like, well, you can't get postpartum when you're pregnant because you haven't had the baby yet. Um, You can, you can get postpartum when you're pregnant. I uh, <laughs> found that out. Um, so it was probably near the middle end of my pregnancy. I started to notice just those feelings of depression. of Already, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. Um, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do this. This My baby deserves so much better than I could ever do. And then near the end, it started to dissipate. I just started to slow down a little bit and and take a bit more time probably get emotional talking about my postpartum but shortly after having Jude I noticed I was very emotional um and they kind of tell you like oh it's your hormones um they'll balance back out and it's just baby blues um but anybody that stopped to look me in the eyes I would instantly start crying every day I, all day I just thought how am I how am I ever gonna be good enough to show up for this human. Like, my son is so much better off if I'm not here. My husband is great. He'll do an amazing job raising this little boy and he'll be healthier if I'm not, if I'm not here. So those thoughts were really prominent. I started to have panic attacks every day um, and even though I was aware of like that I most likely had postpartum, I was still trying to just like, like, no, everyone keeps saying it's, it's the hormones. So I'm going to try, try to weigh it out. And so, yeah, I got to the point where I was having panic attacks daily. Um, those panic attacks would be triggered by nothing, the smallest of things. Uh, one day I was trying to get dressed I looked in my closet And the sweater that I wanted to wear wasn't clean or there. And I just uh, instantly just collapsed. I managed to get to my phone and call my husband. He was at work and on a job site and couldn't really leave. So talked to me and managed to get a hold of my really good friend who lives like two minutes away from us. And she got on the phone with me and had to, talk me through getting dressed and and she also has a little one and so I felt like I could okay to drive I was calmed down enough to drive so she talked stayed with me on the phone until I showed up at her house and I just handed her my baby and fell on the floor and uh she was like okay just take as much time as you need like I got you um and it really wasn't until that moment that I realized, like, I need some serious support. Um, I'm really not okay. I can't be, be at home all day when I, I can't even, I can't make it through the day without having panic attacks. I was starting to self-harm. And so I, I knew there was a postpartum support group in the area. Um, the foundation had had gone in and supported it a little bit in the past, and so um, I got the information and started going. And I remember just like walking in, and and the lady that was facilitating it just looking at me and like he was like, "You're in crisis," um, and she's like, "You need to go to the hospital," and. She asked if I needed it, ride, and I felt okay enough to drive myself there. And I remember, so I drove to the hospital in Stony Plain. They have a mental health unit. And walking in with my, like, three-month-old baby and saying, like, I, I need help. And they handed me a phone number. and was like, you need to call this number. And of all, it took, it literally took everything out of me to get there to get to that point and to ask, to ask for help. And this is where I get frustrated. And I'm not the only person that has felt this frustration in dealing with our, with our system. Um, And so I managed, took me about four or five days before I could call the number and it took them two weeks to get back to me. And then another couple weeks before I was able to see anybody And in the meantime, I had managed to book an appointment with, with my doctor. And, uh, it, it's interesting. Like I had to fill out this like survey of like, how depressed are you? And I was like sitting there, I'm like, can you just like look at me? Like, because clearly not really even functioning at this point. And, uh, so I started medication and, uh, Luckily, for me, it really, really helped me um, almost instantly um, and so it, it gave me that space just to be able to to function, uh, which is what i what I needed
1: Our system can be with with mental health you know I think we've come so far, but it can be so frustrating. I remember going in with my my grandpa who was eighty five years old and had never had any um, you know, struggles with mental health, really his entire life. And then moving off the farm, and he was he was having bad thoughts. He said to my grandma, I'm going to hurt somebody like I need to go in. So they came in, I met them there. And I remember, you know, like I said, my grandpa is worried he's going to hurt himself or someone else. This is not my grandpa, we need to do something like please help him. And, um, you know, they they'll talk, some people will talk. But their hands are tied they don't know necessarily what to do too and they may be working a long shift they're you know they're people as well and this one woman came up and put her arm around me and said honey he's just old like you've just got to let him go I'm like just because he's 85 doesn't mean i'm going to write him off you know and I'm lucky I have Kristen in my life and people in my life that I can say like this the system has really failed him like now what do I do and I think I said that to Kristen what do I do where do I send him he can't get help for two and a half three weeks nobody you know is sure what to give him medication and they ended up prescribing him this great big long list of things to try which was not a fit at all and so sometimes our system does fail us with that um but I want to commend you for walking through that door and saying like, I need help. And you obviously have had that frustrating experience yourself with kind of being let down to the people who do work up the courage to walk through that door. And, and maybe it gets closed or it's not the response that you need or you want. And you kind of have to sort of walk back out feeling maybe even worse. um, But at least you tried, what would you say to that mom or that person that that did reach out that maybe hit, hit the wall?
2: Yeah, it's like if you have have the capacity to keep advocating for yourself and if you don't find someone who will advocate for you, it's so important to ha- have an advocate for yourself because sometimes we can't be that person for ourselves. To not take that as like the final, like, no, there's nothing we can do. to Find courage. you have the courage to get there in the first place, you have a little bit more to try to find the next step in the advocation process of yours for yourself and whether you need somebody to do that for you that's also
0: okay and still takes so much courage to ask for that it's it's devastating for me to hear I'm I'm by trade I'm a registered nurse and I think I'm a big big advocate for for anyone but um you hear these stories over and over and over and you just kind of feel like oh man we're we're failing people all the time and it's not up to the people that are having crises to find the courage. Like, But, yeah, we commend you for just walking through the door. Um, and then, again, for listeners that are struggling, just please walk through the door. And if you don't get the response that you want, just keep walking through other doors. Or find one that will walk through the door for you. Um, yeah, so I, I thank you for sharing that. Because, I, I mean, I, there's so many people that are struggling with postpartum. We did a mother series last year and we shared um, a lot of uh, postpartum stories. And um, it's amazing how many people are struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety. And we just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the phrase like me too. Like if if you say like, you know, I I had this and everyone else is like, Oh wait, I had that too. And then it just opens up that conversation. Um, I had like, postpartum depression and anxiety, and I just didn't recognize it either for quite some time. I just thought I was a neurotic mom. And I had so many people tell me that I was such a good mom. Mm. I was so anal about watching. I was a helicopter mom, essentially, and was just um, focused on just him. And just like, I, I didn't let anyone else touch him, didn't let anyone else like change his diaper or whatever. And I thought I was doing the best that I could, but I was I had such anxiety. Um, and I didn't really realize that until I was out of it. And I, I wish that I would have known that before and it would have been such a better year, I think. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for saying that and being so open and and brave for sharing that story. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about grace because you mentioned a lot, um, in your, in your Instagram stories about grace and you emanate grace. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what it means for you to have grace and how you give yourself grace, even though you have lots of challenges and those self-doubt thoughts in your head?
2: For a long time, I didn't really even understand what the word grace meant. (laughs) And um, for me, still, it's, it's this practice of just being soft and uh, being tender, and so I remember when I was going through the major depression in my early twenties, and my counselor said, "You should start a practice of self-compassion." And I didn't even understand what that meant. How can you have compassion for yourself? That's like not a thing. Like who who has compassion for themselves? That's like this can't even be a real a real thing to have or to feel. And it took me quite a few years of kind of coming back to it over and over and trying to even understand um, what she meant or what she was saying or what those words, words were. It's just a continual practice of like how do I, how do I s- soften? I give so much tenderness to the people around me and none to myself. And just having that awareness, starting to find that awareness of, of like, it's okay if I soften a little bit. And then like, how would I just try it? Let's just get curious to see if this is actually helpful. I was really skeptical that this was not going to be for me. And so it was like, okay, let's just try. It wasn't all the time and it's still not all the time, but it's like, remembering like, how do I soften in this moment? Like maybe I'm not being my best self, maybe I'm having a really hard time. So how do I be more patient with myself? How do I find that loving tenderness for myself? What does that even look like? What does that mean? And it might be different in each scenario Um, Lots of times it's just having space and then asking for help so that I can take the space to do what I need, whether it's doing a bit more yoga or um, having room to meditate and and just be with myself. And then lately having to learn how to give myself grace a little quicker (laughs) without that space because once you have a little one, or in other situations, maybe you don't have the room to remove yourself from the situation that you're in. And so finding that moment of taking a deep breath, even if maybe I have just gotten upset or, or frustrated and just finding my center and, okay, I forgive you for this. We're all human you're doing the best you can right now. And so softening into that, like we can try again. Let's move forward from here.
1: Are there things, Katie, are there, and I mean, obviously getting down on your mat would be one of the ways that you give yourself that time and give yourself that space um, and that compassion. Are there... There are one-liners that you say to yourself, what are some other ways that you um, actively give yourself that, that grace and that compassion that maybe our listener will think, uh, well, I'm not necessarily the get down on the mat type, but that's a one-liner that I really could say to myself.
2: Yeah. I think I have different mantras that I work with. Like I am statements, um, a big one. Well, I have lots of big ones, I guess, but I am, I am light or I am grounded. Where I'm enough. Lots of times to remember to for me to soften towards myself. My physical body needs to soften, so I'll me put my hand on my belly and just let my belly relax and feel the softness in my belly. And like now we can move forward. In
1: Interesting that you say the put your hand on your belly. I have in the last week probably had three or four different things pop up, you know, on Facebook, social media, or people mention that we breathe so much out of the top of our chest and that we actually hold kind of anxiety in there and to actually like push your hands way to the very bottom of your stomach and breathe into your hands. And, um, you know, I thought, well, breathing, I don't, you know, it's not so much uh, a tool that I use and I tried it the other day. I was feeling anxious and I tried it and like, it made a huge difference. And I've been told by, I have this cousin, he's an opera singer and he's amazing. And and he's called me out before. And it's like, why do you talk like that? Why are you breathing like that? Like you breathe through the top of your chest, like get down into your belly. And uh, he said something to me like that before I thought, okay, you know, he's just, he's just doing his thing. It made a huge difference. I felt like my heart rate came down. I felt like I calmed, but also strengthened at the same time. So yeah, I don't know. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that, that I am enough statement too definitely resonated with me.
2: Yeah. Can I touch a little bit on the like breathing? Yes, please. Yeah. I'm a little bit skeptical when it comes to stuff too. So I have to like, like, why is this breathing? Like, why is it helpful? People like say like, oh, you just need to breathe deep breaths and you're fine. It's like, well, but you, we do breathe like really tight up into our chest all day. We're just like, our breath is just moving so we can function, survive. We don't have to think about it. When we're able to take these really deep breaths into our belly, the way our diaphragm moves, when we take these really deep breaths, the movement of the diaphragm, so the more movement we can bring into the diaphragm, which is the, the muscle that sits underneath our lungs. So when we can feel our lungs all the way, then our diaphragm flattens out. And then when we empty all the way, it kind of goes into like semicircle parachute shape. And this movement starts to stimulate the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is attached into our brain and it tells us to move into that rest and digest. And so naturally our body will recognize like we're safe. We can, our thoughts can start being more cognitive. Our heart rate can slow down and we can reground.
1: I love that. Love that. Love that. All right, listener, are you taking nice big belly breaths? <laughs> I know I'm going to be taking more. So the business is obviously you're very, very busy with it. You've kind of been creative about getting a board and doing something like that.
2: Yes. The foundation started me donating my time. That was how we um, how we operated Um, a few years ago. I had a really great opportunity um, to become an ambassador for Lululemon in Edmonton. Through that ambassador program, I was really lucky and really grateful to have met people within that organization who were able to support the foundation. So they have a program called the here to be program and it's all for funding nonprofits in the yoga sector. Um, And so I got introduced to that program and I was in, um, in my ambassadorship and we were really lucky to be chosen as one of the nonprofits to receive, to receive a grant. Um, I think we were, only there's only a couple even throughout canada that got chosen so um i felt very uh very very privileged to receive that grant and so that's how we've been able to from that grant and then through fund fundraising um and we've gotten uh multiple grants uh through this program which has been helpful keeping us going and we also run multiple fundraising um events throughout the year and so through that, now we are, we're able to, we pay our teachers, we give our teachers options. Um, some teachers want to donate their time. Um, it's something, a way for them to give back to the community. Um, and then like any contractor, we all have bills to pay. And so I give my teachers the option to receive different levels of, of payment and what feels comfortable for them and I allow my teachers to choose because it's not up to me to decide what they need. And I, I, my teachers need to feel, not my teachers, but the teachers for the foundation need to feel, you feel supported. And if they don't feel that support, it's not going to feel as good showing up and they, they need to be able to take care of themselves. And that's a big part of the foundation is like, yes, we are out in the community um, supporting the community, but the people that work within the organization also need to, feel supported as much as possible with, from the foundation as well.
1: Well, massive congratulations for, for that Lululemon grant, for the other grants. What would you say to somebody who thinks, well, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to apply.
2: I also thought that I was like, well, worst they're going to do is just like not get back to me. Um, but I was like, I might as well take the t- time to put, put the grant application together and send it in. The worst they're gonna do is say no. And I, at least I know I, I tried. Um, and I had to apply a couple times. The first, the first year I applied, uh, we did get shortlisted, but we didn't re- receive any of the grant. And um, they encourage you to keep applying. So the next year I thought I might as well op- apply again, and um, I did, and we received received the funds. So to just yeah, just go for it. Because the worst people are gonna do is say no to you and then that's okay. Move on, try something, try a different approach, try again, apply again.
0: So what um what makes you most hopeful for the future and what makes you most hopeful for the for the foundation's future? I think when you go,
2: when you move through really challenging times and you keep showing yourself that you can keep moving through it, that it's like Okay, maybe like we can keep moving forward. Um, I can still keep showing up, and there's periods, obviously, in like that feel really, really good, and they're a little bit more. Important. I mean, we all have day stress, but I used to think in those moments where and times where I'd be feeling really good, like, oh, like, well, what if I get depressed again? What if my mental illness comes comes back? Because I don't know if it ever really like goes away or not, I don't know, but, um, but now it's just, I think maybe my perspective has changed a little bit too since having my son and, and just looking back at what I went through the first year of his life. And it was like, okay, we made it through that. It was hard Feels like a super giant understatement, but, and we're still here and we can keep moving forward and, that makes me makes me feel hopeful and just also seeing how resilient children children are and then most hopeful for the foundation um, i'm just like so grateful for the for the team that runs the foundation they believe in it and take it on as their own that feels so supportive the people yeah to me it's just people i love people and so how amazing everyone everyone is and how we can support each other and support the community. And I just know that we'll keep moving forward. And that doesn't mean that it has to grow and grow and grow and grow and and be giant because every class matters. Every time we show up, we're impacting someone. And even those classes when at the very beginning, when we had one class a week and, you know, maybe we saw 10 people, it's like those, that's 10 people that didn't have, have access to this tool before and we know it's not for, for everybody but the people that it is supportive they stay. We have have a couple students that have been with us for six years every week and to see the progression and to hear the stories and I mean we live in a relatively small town and so sometimes i will run into students um, that we've taught around town and just hearing how the foundation has impacted them in times because we don't we don't get to know what maybe they're going through at the time or or how they're feeling, but then even hearing the stories afterward of like, you know, how the foundation supported them is really touching and that's and humbling, you know, and just listening to people's stories of resilience too just keeps us going.
1: Those are very clearly your whys, you know, obviously, right? Everybody that you're helping and, and um, each individual, like you said, small, we sometimes have to govern the changes that we make based on how big they are. And they don't need to be, you know, they don't need to be charted like that. They don't need to, we don't need to keep track of them. Small differences are still differences too. And you're making a difference in so many people's lives and days. And you don't know what they bring to their mat and what you've helped them get through. Mm-hmm. If you could tell our listeners one thing today, what would it be? Just that they,
2: like they matter. And that was one of the biggest things i learned through this is that I matter. They don't need to be fixed. We have this want in our society to fix everything. Um, but human beings, we don't need to be fixed. We just need to be seen. And so, yeah, knowing that you
0: matter and you don't need to be fixed. We always say... People just want to be seen and heard and valued. And you said that, like, that's essentially what we want. And we do, we always seem like we need to be fixed. And I'm taking, um, I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's the not banal training. It's a big proponent of we don't need to fix mm. people. There's nothing to be fixed. It's you need to meet people where they're at. And I love that you just said, we don't need to be fixed and we're enough. And so thank you for sharing that. That's amazing.
1: I think we're all just trying our best. And the, the grace piece, I come back to the grace piece. You said, like, give yourself grace. And we are trying our best. And, and I love that you are really living your passion. And I think because you are living your passion, you're able to give yourself that grace because you do get to go to work at something that is very important to you every day. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, we ask, what is your sacred spot that can help you get right and how can you show up for yourself and what is your true passion and where can you spend more of your time? So thank you so much, Katie, for coming. Can you share with listeners quickly how they can learn more about the Be Free um, Foundation and yeah, where they can find you?
2: We have a website, BeFreeYogaFoundation.com. Our Instagram is at BeFreeYogaFoundation. And so that's where we put a lot of our stuff and what we're up to and, and doing. And yeah, we have our, young and the park coming up with the park parts in quotation marks, but we're going to do, it's our big fundraiser for the year. We've done it. It's our fifth year and uh, it's coming up in June. And so you can find some information about that and no matter where you are, you can
0: join in because we'll be online this year. So wonderful. We'll, we'll put it on the show notes as well. And, and we'll tag everyone on Instagram as well. So thank you very, thank you very much, Katie, for joining us.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for having me and thank you for giving this space for people to share their stories. It's really important. Storytelling is very healing. And so
1: thank you.